0: Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is brought to you by the NBA Store. A new year brings the start of a new NBA season. Suit up with the latest gear to show you support your team. We may be sidelined from going to the arena right now, but that doesn't mean you can't watch basketball from your couch in style. We are teaming up with the NBA and Podgo to bring our listeners up to 75% off of selected items. Yes, you heard that right, folks. Go to slash NBA for up to 75% off select items from the NBA store. The NBA, where amazing happens.
1: The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different.
0: Joining us on the line right now is a former IWA and AWF World Tag Team Champion and, of course, a former UWF Television Champion. You may know him as Sunny Beach or Steady Beach. He is, of course, Mr. Rick Allen. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I appreciate it. I'm doing great. The snow's a little bad up here in
1: Long Island, but uh, I'm inside warm and uh,
0: can't complain. Yeah, we were just saying a lot of uh, snow. Not really unexpected, but maybe more than than we thought we were going to get. So I
1: got almost two feet of snow out here by me. I live out in Northport, Long Island, and um about a mile away from the beach. And it's like uh, uh, pretty bad out here today. I mean, the roads are closed. Everybody was inside today. Uh, I got a snow plow a little bit earlier and plowed my driveway. But other than that, I stayed in all day yeah nice
0: nice so what have you kind of been up to what's, what's been going on in your world lately
1: well my world i own a security guard company up here in new york new jersey and florida and pennsylvania we do a lot of uh, nightclubs restaurants lounges but with covid uh you know 19 running rapid here in the new york and long island area um my business is down about 90 percent right now but um uh, Wow. Still got a job, still got some accounts that we still doing, you know, regular security guard work. But um, most of my business was nightlife, restaurants, bars, nightclubs, catering halls, movie sets, bodyguard work, um, private events. And uh, now there's not too much of that going on with our governor and mayor uh, in New York. Uh, it's kind of tough to make a living here. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people
0: are leaving uh, for sure. But that's pretty much what I've been
1: doing. And I own a security guard training school where I do all the I'm a general topics instructor with the state of New York for the last six years, and I have my own training school called BSI Security Training at the Long Island Training Center. That's in Levittown, Long Island, and I train a lot of the school districts out here in Long Island. I train Iona College. There are security guards there, Old Westbury College, uh, a lot of different places out here. And then we offer individual training for regular guards that have to take their annual classes every year or pre-assignment classes if they want to become a security guard. We also do armed guard training where we take them to the range and teach them how to shoot to become an armed security guard. Wow.
0: How did you kind of get into that business, that line of work? Well, when I wasn't wrestling, um, it's a long story,
1: but I was going to be a policeman in Jacksonville, Florida, before I was going to become a, a
0: pro wrestler, when I
1: was wrestling, kind of. I went to the police academy, and I was going to be a policeman down there, and then I got a call from and uh, Manningham to do the movie No Holds Barred back in 88 and then start with a WWF right after that. So I never went into law enforcement. I went through the academy, and I was about to graduate, and that's when they called me to do the movie, and they offered me a two-year deal with the WWF, and I took that instead of being a policeman. And 15 years later, I was still wrestling, and uh, when I got out of wrestling, I saw the need to do something with my life and feed my family. So when I wasn't wrestling full-time, I was doing bodyguard work with celebrities and rock bands, the 38 Special, Molly Hatchett, Southern Rock Bands, and I knew guys from Jacksonville, Florida, where I grew up. And I'd go on tour with some of these groups and, uh, you know, provide a security for them, concert security. And then I started doing stuff in New York, bouncing at nightclubs, and I got my own team together. And then I got licensed as a watch guard and patrol agency, and the
0: rest is history. Nice, and uh, No Holds Barred, very cool. How did they kind of find you and get you into that great movie? I was uh, wrestling down in Florida and
1: Georgia at the time, and I was with the company Southern Championship Wrestling. Jerry Blackwell was promoting a bunch of shows in uh, Georgia, and uh, they had I like, Tony, Adidas, Abdul the Butcher Wrestling 2, Tommy Rich, Dickie Slater, uh, Buck Robley was one of the bookers there, myself. Um, uh, there was a ton of people down there. Um, who else was there a lot? Uh, Doug Summers. Um, Ray Lloyd, who before he was Glacier, he was up and coming and star down there. So Jeff Jarrett would come in and out. Um, Kerr Henning, AWA would come in with Jerry Blackwell, and we'd have shows in the Cobb County Civic Center. And it was a—they uh, had their own TV up there in Atlanta. Joe Petticino and uh, Gordon Soley had a weekly uh, show down there, and they would do like the pro wrestling. Uh, forgot what it was called, but they—they they had a, a syndicated show that was on weekly, and they would give all like the. Uh, different shows throughout the country you know wwf uh, continental florida championship georgia championship memphis you know they would go all over japan you know they would have highlights from all these places and uh pat patterson and mcmahon and they found me and they offered me a spot in the movie they said you had a good look and uh we didn't want you know just every wrestler we wanted an unknown guy to fight joe the duke in the bar scene so i was in the First Octagon fight scene in that no-count bar. Uh, I was one of the short headbangers against uh, Joe the Duke in the, in the movie. And then I started WWF right after that in uh, June of 88. And I wrestled with them for like two, two and a half years.
0: Very, very cool. Like kind of just a way to, to get in and get noticed. Uh, very, very different for sure. Yeah, I got,
1: you know, I got to become friends with Stan Hansen, and then he got me booked into Japan in 1991, All Japan Pro Wrestling. Me and Johnny Ace were a tag team there my first tour, and then me and the Patriot were a tag team the second uh, tour, Del Wilkes. So I got to wrestle a lot in Japan, and I got over really good there, and uh, you know, I was a bigger star in
0: Japan than I was in the States here that is like a, a very kind of cool journey obviously hansen was also in, in no holds barred as well
1: yeah that's where we became friends uh, myself stan uh tiny lister zeus um we used to go work out every day when we were filming down there and uh ray lloyd i got him as an extra glacier before he goes glacier before he got to wcw uh he went to school in Valdosta, georgia and uh I broke him into the business down there we were working for this uh, promoter peach day wrestling Ben Mana out of uh, Americas Georgia he would do shows, Cordillo America's make Georgia all you know like th- throughout Georgia and uh, when I wasn't wrestling with him I would work with Southern championship or Florida championship and I was just you know trying to hone my craft and just get as many bookings as I could to get noticed so I could either go to WCW or to uh, Vince and that's you know 1988's
0: when i got my big break with no holds barred and uh you
1: know the rest is history so to speak what
0: was it like working with the hulkster hulk hogan
1: oh he was great i mean all the shows that i would work with hulkster you know were sellouts back in 88 89 you know when the no holds bar movie came out i was on a lot of big cards with him and uh making great money you know here i'm a kid 23 years old jacksonville florida about to turn 24 and never really been out of florida and georgia and alabama you know that southern circuit and then i'm traveling all over the world and you know we'd go overseas and do england tours and be on sky channel over there and um, you know i got to travel all over the united states and canada with the wwf so i got real lucky and then i went to england uh, a couple of times with them over there so it was like uh, great you know 88 89 90 and then i went to um, Right after that, they booked me up with Stu Hart up in Calgary. I went up there for about a month and a half and worked up there. But it was too cold for me. I didn't really like the cold, and the the vans kept breaking down. I had to take the trailie buses back. And uh, we had a great crew up in uh, in Calgary when I was up there. The Bulldogs were there. Uh, Lethal Larry Cameron was there. Steve DeSalvo, um, Steve Blackman was up there. Chris Benoit. who else were there? Goldie Rogers. Don Morocco came in. Randy Cully was up there, one of the moon dogs. Um Wow. Who else was there? Buck and Singh, back when he was, before he was Norman with WCW, Mike Shaw, or Bastion Booger. He was up there as a big heel. Um, who else was there? Gary Albright was there. So we had a really, really talented crew up in Calgary when I came in, and uh, Brian Pillman just came back, and we were going to do a program with him, but uh, I just couldn't take cold, so I was only up there about six weeks, and then I left. I was, it was just not for me,
0: Calgary. Did you kind of enjoy though the the wrestlers and and wrestling those guys because it's a pretty good uh, crop of guys oh it was
1: it was great i love the matches I, I got to work with benoit a couple of times up there i wrestled him in his hometown in edmonton for the um commonwealth championship and we went like a half hour up there we had like a five-star match and the you know sheets you know talked about our match up there and i think they had it on their t- tv up there so it was really good I got along with all the guys up there. Even the, the Power Twins were up there. That's actually where I met there, Dave, the Power Twins before they came to UWF and before we started
0: working on independent shots throughout New York and New Jersey together. It is interesting just like what happens. Like you said – you know, they find you work at No Holds Barred, then all of a sudden Hanson's your friend and you go to all Japan, the Power Twins, are your, you know, you become friendly with them, then you work at UWF. Wrestling is a strange business where it's just like, hey, you make friend here and there, and boom, you can be friends for years because they'll get you in here or you can get them in there.
1: 100%. like Glacier, I got him into the movie No Holds Barred, and, you know, he, he got in up in Atlanta and he started hanging out with Diamond Dallas Page and Eric Bischoff and those guys. He went to the power plant, and he was training and he got in and then when a door open for him and you know he'd tell everybody he was in with no holds bar and everything and they they got him right in and they gave him a character you know like that Mortis character and Glacier and, yeah. and now he's he just did a little movie where he had a lot of wrestlers in it with Stan Hansen and uh, Haku was in it and uh, who else Larry Zabisco uh, Ernest the Cat Miller, Steve, uh, Luther was in it. So they had a lot of guys that, you know, were with WCW that came back and they, they shot a movie down in Orlando. And, uh, I think it's called, uh, expandables or something like that, or deplorables, Depl- uh, deplorables or something like that. But, uh, it's kind of scheduled to come out sometime this year. So it's an independent film and, uh, they're looking for a release date sometime in the summer.
0: So if I just can rewind back a little bit to WWF and go back to 1988. So when you're originally there, are you Rick Allen, or do they give you the name Sandy Beach well, as of that yet? Was,
1: that was the name I was working with, Sandy Beach, when I first went up to WWF.
0: And... Um,
1: I didn't have the name trademarked or anything. Allegedly, there was a DJ down in Tampa, Florida that used the name Sandy Beach for a DJ. But he was like a DJ. He was an MC. He was a host. He was a master of ceremonies. He worked catering halls. He uh, did bodyguard work, bouncing. So he was like a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, so to speak. But Mm -hmm. when he saw me on WWF TV, he said I was... uh, Ruining his name because I was uh, enhancement talent with them kind of when I was first starting out there. So they, uh, he says, I was giving them a bad name, losing on television all the time. So and I wasn't working a lot of. T- I mean, I worked a lot of TV tapings for, but I was doing house shows and I was on the road with them. I had booking sheets, so I was on the road a good solid you know year with them. You know before you know I was really even known with WWF.
0: What do you think about the term enhancement guy? I mean, I know some guys are kind of against it. Some guys don't mind it. What, do you, like, what are your no, uh, thoughts on that?
1: I don't mind it because I know that I could wrestle. and I could, I, I've gotten a ring with the biggest and baddest from Andre the Giant, Bruiser Brody, King Kong Bundy, Kamala, all the monster heels, Oxbaker. I've wrestled them all. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, I put my boots on the same way they do. The only thing is the promoter, they might have a little bit more juice than I do, or, you know, they might have been around the business a little longer or they were a draw, but it takes two people to have a match. And uh, Enhancement Talent, I got paid the same way they did, not on a bigger scale. But I made money everywhere I went wrestling. So I didn't look at it as an enhancement talent. I looked at it as a job. And I never had the big head. I never cared about titles or belts. I just said, keep me working and keep me paying my bills and making money. And I still do that today with my family and anything else that I do. I mean, I've always you know, looked at the business as a job, as a career. And that's what I did. I wrestled 15 years. So I had a pretty good run. I've been to every major territory in the country, all the yeah. world, you know, all Japan, Puerto Rico. Um, I've been to England, Germany. I mean, I've been all overseas tours all over the place with the same WWF guys that you see on TV. So, I mean, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm working a main event one night in Vienna, Austria with, you know, Mick Foley or a Dobby Dallas Page and here they're world champions with WWF. So, you know, I've wrestled all of them and, you know, I have nothing but good memories in the business.
0: Love it. And as far as kind of, the wwf and being sandy beach and kind of going through so basically you did you have a deal per se because because technically you go to uh stampede then you go to wcw for a little bit so did you have a contract or was it one of those kind of open-ended like they'll use you when they want to use you kind of deals
1: well, I, I had a contract my first you know year or so and then uh you know after you know You're really only as good as your last match there. If you piss somebody off up there, you're not in a click or a new click comes in or somebody on top doesn't like you, you know, that could ruin your run. Or you only got like 30 or 40 spots up there. And then, you know, they didn't have a a training center down in Orlando when I was wrestling, you know, or they had, you know, territories still. And they would take guys from different territories and make them stars or bring up a guy if somebody got hurt you know, and somebody got hurt, you know, you only have so many spots, you know, you only have eight to 10 matches a night at, at, you know, say the Madison Square Garden, so out of, you know, 10 matches, you're probably only gonna have maybe 25, I mean, between 26 and 30 wrestlers on the card, you know, and that's the main card, but back then in 88, when I was wrestling with them, they were running three to four house shows a night all over the country, so they needed extra guys, and I'm you know, it was a great time for me to be there, and I got to work a lot. Scott Casey, I worked with Manny Poffo, Hercules Hernandez, the the young stallions. I tagged a lot. Me and Iron and Mike Sharp tagged with a lot of people. I worked with SD Jones a lot. Um, you name it, I worked with pretty much all the talent there. Ronnie Garvin, Hillbilly Jim. Um, I had great matches with all these guys.
0: What did you think of that era? So many people say it's the golden era, the larger-than-life characters. You know, this, the creative was better because if the guy was, you know, opening match, he usually had a storyline to go along with. Like, it just seemed like, to me, it was a much better era. But did you kind of foresee it and see it as the golden era?
1: I did. I mean, when I was in junior high school, high school, all I thought about was being –
0: a pro wrestler, you
1: know, uh, they had me fill out a sheet in the guidance office, you know, a questionnaire, what do you want to do when you grow up or, you know, 11th grade, they're talking about going to college or your careers. I said, I either want to be a policeman or a pro wrestler. And the lady looked at me, pro wrestler. And I said, yeah, Dusty Rhodes, you know, guys like that. As mm. you like that stuff. I said, I've loved it since I was a kid. So I was eight up. I had the wrestling bug from a young age. I used to watch it every Saturday morning, championship wrestling from Florida, growing up in Jacksonville. And every Thursday night, they would have matches at the Jacksonville Coliseum. And I had one more in, Don Curtis, who was an old school wrestler. Uh, His daughter, Lisa Curtis, and I went to high school together. So I knew a pro wrestler that was a world champion and a promoter out of Jacksonville. And, you know, one of Eddie Graham's, you know, promoters in Florida. So he told me, go get a, college education, if you want to, you know, wrestle, come back and see me after college and I'll introduce you to the right people. And he did. I didn't want to, you know, go to college. I had football scholarships, wrestling scholarships. I wrestled amateur. I was all-city, all-state in Florida, Jacksonville, Terry Parker High School. And then I – just wanted to be a pro wrestler and I started working outlaw shows and independent shows and then I started going down to TV tapings, uh, championship wrestling from Florida every every Tuesday and uh, you know doing TV tapings and I was on Saturday mornings getting the crap kicked out of me by the bushwhackers. Or back then they were the sheep herders when I worked with them. Ray Candy, uh, big Leroy Brown. Uh, I wrestled Muda, one of his first matches in the United States when he came to uh, Florida. He was a black ninja back then. So, I mean, I've, I've got to wrestle with some of the best in the business. Blackjack Mulligan, um, Crippler Rip Oliver, um, this, uh, Kevin Sullivan, Bob Roop, um, that whole faction uh, that they had back when they were doing the occult thing. Um, Mark Lewin. So, I mean, I, I paid my dues. I used to have to set up the rings, take the rings down. Um, you know fill up the guys coolers with beer driving from town to town so back then when i started out in 85 you were still paying dues you know you had it wasn't just you know you go in and you know go to a wrestling school and uh get to wrestle you know it was you got to pay your dues and, and work your way and be an opening match or be a uh, uh one of the contestants in a battle royal or something and then take down the ring and then set the ring up in the next town and that's how you earned your way into the business
0: do they, quote-unquote, let you in right away? I mean, do they kind of, Oh, It you was know... still
1: kayfabe back then. It was very protective. You had to know somebody or somebody had to speak in your behalf or you had to befriend somebody or you had to go to the gym and work out with these guys. And at nine out of ten times they would stretch you to see how tough you were, how bad you really wanted it. The only good thing about me back then, I was like, 260, 6'4", and I was in good shape. I could bench press 450 pounds, natural, and uh, I was an amateur, so I had a little shooting background, you know, so they wouldn't tie me up, but if they did, I would get out of it and, I'd, you know, did, you know, grapple with them. So, you know, they liked that about me, and I was very respectful. I wouldn't speak until I was spoken to them. I always, you know, shook everybody's hand in the locker room, hi, how you doing, Rick Allen. Back then I was Rick Allen when I was wrestling with, uh, championship wrestling from Florida.
0: So, you know, I,
1: I didn't get Sandy Beach gimmick till you know, 1987, 88, you know, two years after paying dues, just getting jobbed out and squashed and being an enhanced metal for, you know, Championship wrestling for Florida continental wrestling or you know peach day wrestling i was opening matches and then i worked my way into a tag team and then we'd lose to like maybe the oats brothers or rock and roll express that were around there or maybe tony atlas and ted Oates or chick donovan and someone else so i got to wrestle with some really great talent coming up and getting to learn you know, my craft from some seasoned professionals now, Mr. Russell, number two, once told me, he goes, You know, you're going to make a lot of friends in this business. You're going to meet a lot of people. He goes, But when you retire, you're only going to have a handful of friends that you could really call your friends in this business. And I didn't know what he meant till after I kind of got out of the business and retired. And I saw him and I said, You know, you made a lot of sense back when I was a kid. When we were in the locker room, you told me I would only have a handful of friends. I said, You're right. I could kind of, one or two hands, how many people I still keep in touch with or who I you know, really liking this business. So I would consider a friend or who I would invite to my house to have dinner. So he said, I'm glad you listened to me. So he was a really good guy. He mentored a lot of young guys in the Georgia area, you know, growing up
0: and getting into business. Yeah, huge legend. We lost him last year along with Zeus, who you mentioned before. A lot of uh, uh, legendary deaths.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just a shame, you know, so many guys that I wrestled with with the WWF are gone, you know, like Kerr Henning, Rick Rude, Hercules Hernandez, uh, Big Boss Man, Macho Man, Ultimate Warrior, Andre the Giant, Big John Studd. I mean, uh, uh, the Bulldogs, uh, the Road Warriors, Um, who else? I mean, there's so many guys. I looked at one of the cards I was on uh, back in, like, 88, and half the card was dead. I was like, I can't believe it's Bam Bam Bigelow, uh, Luna Vachon, Sherry Martell. Like, oh my God, Miss Elizabeth, you know Captain Lou, Johnny Valiant, managers, Mr. Fuji. So it, it's you know it really hits home. You know a lot of these guys that you know I, I got to travel with up and down the roads, and they're not here anymore.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. All gone way too soon for sure. I mean. You know, especially being me, such a big fan, it's like wow. Part of your childhood goes each time one of these guys goes. It's very, very sad. Obviously, you're friends with most of them, so it's even even more sad for you for sure. I mean, you know,
1: you, it's almost like you have two different families. You got your family at home, that your wife and kids, or you know, your mother, father, whatever it might be, brothers and sisters, and then you're on the road like three hundred days out of the year with these guys, and they're your wrestling family. And, you know, you, you go out to eat with them every day, you go to the gym with them, you work with them at night, you travel three, four or five hours in the car with them, we're driving from town to town, uh, doing laundry at the laundromat, you know, and, and and just, you know, you get to be really close with some of the guys. Look at, you know, Luke Harper and those guys. He just passed away, you know, Mm -hmm. with the the lung thing. And, you know, he was one of the good guys in the business. This guy would, you know, go home to his wife and kids. You know, he'd leave uh, a town and drive six, eight, ten hours to get home early so he could just be with his family an extra day, you know. And sometimes you're, you're on the road two weeks on, three days off, three weeks on, two days off. You know, back then, WWF was running us ragged. We'd have flights at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. We would get out of the arena to 10, 11 o'clock at night, go get something to eat, check in your hotel, sleep three or four hours if you're lucky, do your laundry in the hotel room, your, 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 your spandex or whatever, clean your boots up, hang it out to dry, then pack your shit up the next morning and you're back to the airport going to another town. So, you know, people think it's a very glamorous life. I mean, yeah, you're living like a rock star when you're working at, you know, got your booking sheet and you're going from town to town, but you don't have a lot of time to
0: enjoy it, believe me. Especially then, like you said, in WWF, you're working a few times at night sometimes, you know, they've got multiple shows going on, then you got to you travel, you're working sometimes five days a week at, at least. Sundays.
1: You know, Saturday and Sunday, I have a double shot, an afternoon show, then a night show. So it was, you know, you'd have a matinee, and then you'd have an evening show, and some of them were, you know, 100 miles away. Some of them were a couple hours away. So you finish one thing, you jump in the car. Usually with your gimmick on, you're, you're, you're wrestling a tire, and you can drive to the next town. Sometimes, you know, they would run you, but you were making great money, so nobody was really complaining. But that's when all the guys got involved with the drugs and alcohol to keep them going, you know, pills to wake up in the morning, pills to keep you awake, pills to make you go to sleep. Uh, you know, so the steroid era was back then. Everybody was juicing, and it was just, uh, it was crazy. Some of the stuff they'd, uh, I saw happen. Guys getting drunk and just acting stupid and passing out, and other guys playing ribs on you, putting Halcyons and sleeping pills in your drink to make you pass out. Then they'd shave your eyebrows or cut your clothes up and just do stupid stuff. I mean, I saw a lot of crazy stuff, and some of it. You know, I don't even like talking about... Yeah, it might have been funny at the time, but thank God we didn't have cell phones back then.
0: Oh, yeah. A lot of those guys would be in a lot of trouble, that's for sure. Oh,
1: forget about it. A lot of big trouble.
0: So in WBF with you, it's like, wow, you were on TV a lot, you know, whether it be Superstars or Wrestling Challenge or, you know, on the MSG Network. Is yeah. that something that would that's, like, really, really cool looking back? Like, man, I I was on TV, you know, a lot more than you know, a ton of other guys were on TV. Well, that was the cool thing
1: about it. I mean, I didn't care if I won or lost. Most of the time, they would let me work. I mean, you know, I wasn't getting squashed or nothing at WWF TV. I mean, I would lose, but, you know, I'm wrestling Demolition, me and Mike Sharp, and they pinned Mike Sharp. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, know, whatever it was where they pinned me, but, you know, they weren't squashing me, you know. They were eating other guys up. And, uh, you know, and then I, they would let me work. Like, I wrestled Madison Square Garden a couple times, and you know, and, and in TV tapings. I mean, I got to work with, you know, a 20-minute program with Manny uh, Poffo there. I got to work with uh, uh, Cowboy Scott Casey, I think it was September 29, 1988, first time I appeared at a Madison Square Garden. So, I mean, I, that, 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 you know, that's when I knew I really made it in wrestling. You know, that was my dream, to wrestle Madison Square Garden. And I said before I get out of wrestling business, I want to wrestle at least one time at Madison Square Garden. And I, and I did that. I got to go to Japan. That was another dream. Stan Hansen got me booked over there, 1991. I was in the World Tag League Championship, with uh, me and Johnny Ace were a tag team. I got to wrestle against Giant Baba and Andre the Giant. I got to wrestle against Stan Hansen and Danny Spivey. I got to wrestle against Steve Gordy, I mean, Terry Gordy and Steve Williams. I mean, Jumbo Saruta and Talway, Masawa Kawada. I mean, Abdullah Butcher and Kamala, Dory Funk Jr., and, you know, the, the, uh, the Destroyer, Dick Byer was there. I mean, I got to wrestle some of the best in the business, and, and I'm very appreciative of that, and I'm honored to have said I, I shared the ring with these guys. A lot of guys don't, don't look at it like that, but, you know, it was a job for me. But I was also a fan, and I, I grew up watching these guys. So it was an honor to interact with them and to be one of the boys and to become part of the family.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And that list of guys is just tremendous. The best of the best, really, you think about it. It's crazy oh, yeah, how many awesome guys.
1: guys. You know, I wrestled down to my kid in his last match in Corican Hall and put him over there. And, you know, we had a great match there. Uh, Masawa Kawada me and Johnny Ace we, we did a five star match you know over there in Japan those guys were on the top of the top back then as Japanese superstars uh, you know Masawa Kawada they're wrestling these guys and they're the all Asian tag team champions and you know they're wrestling like Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody and all these guys And I mean it was like huge you know that i got to work with these guys bruiser brody i worked with him a few times down at southern championship wrestling him and tommy rich were tagging me and doug summers wrestled him a couple of times um him and abby would work down there had bloodbaths all over the arenas i mean it was an honor to work with brody brody kicked the shit out of me a couple of times i had a big goose egg on my head from where he kicked me and pinned me you know with his big boot but you know I didn't give up, and I didn't say anything. I thanked him after the match. He goes, wow, you're a tough kid. You know, and then a couple months later, he he gets killed in Japan. I mean, in in Puerto Rico. You know, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I was working with Vince, and everybody, you know, oh, my God, Brody got killed and stabbed to death in Puerto Rico. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just wrestled him a couple months ago with Southern Championship. And that was, you know, an eye opening experience. And I'm good friends with Tony Atlas. And Tony Atlas told me the whole story about what happened with Jose, you know, uh, Gonzalez down there in the locker room. He was there, Dutch Mantel was there. So they, they got to see it firsthand and lived it. And Stan Hansen will never go back to Puerto Rico because of what they did to Brody, because they were that good of friends, best friends.
0: Yeah, that was just a crazy. That story is just insane. I you know, can't believe it. And it's interesting. They did a whole dark side of the ring on that, and they did a whole dark side of the ring on you guys in the UWF with uh, Herb Abrams. Yeah, that
1: was a, a good show, and I wanted to participate in that because I was very close with Herb Abrams. And When
0: he came from California,
1: he booked me to, you know, started with his uwf when he came to john arizzi's weekend of champions show this this year is going to be the 30-year anniversary of weekend of champions john was one of the first to do the wrestling convention you know like WrestleCon and all that stuff oh yeah you all the weekend of champions he had bruno san martino there buddy rogers lutez mula superstar billy Graham, bob Backlund, you name it wendy richter all the big people were there captain lou albano Every superstar world champion, Ivan Koloff, they were all there for Weekend of Champions. And I got to be there and Mick Foley when we were really first starting out, you know. And it was like an honor to be there with him. But I'm, I'm very close with John, too. And he's talking about doing a 30-year uh, Weekend of Champions uh, reunion this uh, this uh, year, uh, anniversary show, 30-year anniversary show, Weekend of Champions, maybe in New York or Long Island somewhere. So, I'm definitely going to help him be part of that when he does that. But the Herb Abrams thing, uh, dark side of the ring, they called me up. John Arisney called me, because goes, how would you like to do this with the dark side of the ring? And Evan Hutz, the, the producer of dark side called me and we met and, um, we had a nice conversation. They came, they filmed a couple of days and I took them to the cemetery where Herb was buried because I was there when he got buried with his mother and sister and his family. And, um, I even got his dog when he died, you know, nobody could take the dog. So I took his dog. Wow. So, uh, you know, I was booking shows with him, a few shows up here. I was helping him do the TV with Lenny Dude and, uh, Bruno was the commissioner back then, and Captain New. And Herb had a lot of great talent, too. I mean, Andre came to work for Herb. And once uh, Vince saw Andre on UWF TV, he brought him back to WWF real quick. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, people like Rick Rude, Honky Tonk Man, Greg Valentine, Sid Vicious, they were all coming. Uh, Rick, I mean, it was like unbelievable how the talent that he was getting off of WWF TV. And as soon as they would come in and try to do TV, Vince would put a squash on it because they were still under contract or he threatened legal action against them. Well, all these guys. But Sid didn't care. He came into the pay-per-view of the blackjack brawl out there in, uh, in Las Vegas with us. But we had, if, if Herb had more money and if he wouldn't have partied so much and if he had a, a good booker and some inner you know, back office, he would, have, he would have definitely gone a lot farther than where he went.
0: Is he as crazy and insane as was kind of portrayed in a documentary?
1: You know, that's a great question. It depends who he was around and who he was with. Like there were certain people, like he knew me, I was a family man. He would come to my house and he was very respectful of me and my family. He always treated me kind and, you know, he always bought dinner or whatever. He treated me and my family like gold, like we were his family. And uh, I saw him, you know, sometimes if people weren't nice to him or, if you know, they wanted to party, he would party with some of the guys. The guys were partying. He would go to the bar and hang out. And, you know, yeah, he, he did like his cocaine. He did like his hookers. And he liked to have a good time. He wasn't married. He got divorced right after he started at the UWF. I knew his wife when he was married. And uh, I even went out there when he was getting divorced. He flew me out to California to go to the divorce court with him because they were threatening him, you know, with bodily harm. And Herb was a small guy, only like five foot four, and maybe, you know, 150, 160 pounds top, so I flew out there to make sure nobody bothered him when we were at court. Uh, there was a That guy from Different Strokes, uh, that actor, Gary Coleman, was out there, and he was in court, too, because I think his parents or somebody was squandering his money or took some of his money as a child actor. So he was going to court against his parents, and I was standing in line, and me, Herb, and Gary Coleman, we were all talking. I said, Herb, I, I, I can't believe you didn't tell me we're going to small claims court. (laughs) <laughs> everybody busted out laughing Gary Coleman he was like you got jokes and, you know it was it was pretty good but you know Herb was just uh, his own worst enemy sometimes but he he was a good hearted person and he really tried and he used his, a lot of his own money to try to funnel and fund the UWF he used a lot of money too Sports Channel America gave him over a million dollars to promote uh, wrestling shows for their network so he wasted a lot of money too but if he had you know it cost a lot of money too to produce TV shows he had 13 week weeks into can he was going to do another 13 weeks sports channel america was getting ready to renew his contract and everything and that's when he just went you know he, he didn't do too good with these pay-per-views and they they took the money back for the second round of uh taping so that's where you know he kind of got really messed up and a lot of guys were like upset because he was promising them a lot of work
0: and it didn't come about where did he have all that money? Like, what was his real job that he was able to... He used to
1: own a bunch of boutique big women's clothes. I'm a big girl now. He had
0: women's uh, clothing stores.
1: And he, he made a lot of money with that. He, uh, I guess he had some investments out in California that he did some stuff. He invested, I think he maybe had, like, a restaurant or something out there. Or his wife's family had some money, too. And that's where I think he has a lot of his money. But he had a lot of boutique stores and stuff down there, and he made a lot of money off of that. Um, and then when he sold all that, he used a lot of that money to funnel his, you know, dream of becoming a big promoter.
0: Was he also a drug dealer? That's like a rumor out there that he was a big-time no, drug dealer as no, so. well.
1: He, he partied, he drank, he did his cocaine, you
0: know. But
1: he, uh, he also had a... a a heart condition that nobody knew about till after he died. So, um, you know, I think he was on heart medication and maybe, you know, I guess cocaine and uh, heart problems don't mix, you know, and uh, I guess when you speed up your heart and everything else, he had some medical underlying medical issues that I think that's what really killed him, you know, when, plus the cocaine and the drinking and everything else.
0: Yeah, it's one of those, like, crazy sad stories. It's like, wow, this guy just kind of just – went over the edge all at once. It just was like, wow. He was
1: was well-liked by all the boys. I mean, for you to get a Bruno San Martino to come to work for you, after you were world champion with Vince Senior and Vince McMahon for all those years, and you were one of the most credible names in the wrestling business, to have him back your organization and become a commissioner and announcer, Craig DeGeorge, and he was getting all this talent. John Tolis, Captain Lou, Johnny Valiant. I mean, he, it was endless all the talent he was bringing in. And uh, guys wanted to work for him, Bob Orton Jr., uh, Steve Dr. Death Williams, Bam Bam Bigelow, Paul Orndorff, Brian Blair, Jim Brunzel. I mean, this goes on and on and on, who he was bringing in. Uh, Sid Vicious, um, Johnny Ace came in. I mean, we had a lot, a lot of really great talent. He brought Bob Backlund and... and uh, Ivan Koloff to each Brawl as a Legends match, two WWF champions. So, I mean, it was like a a big thing, you know. Wendy Richter and Rock and uh, Robin, and he had a lot, a lot of great talent there.
0: If you really look at it, like you mentioned before, Andre the Giant too. If you just look at some of the talent that went through there, it's like, wow, like he really, you know, <laughs> kind of spared no expense in bringing in some really, really great names.
1: A lot of these guys, you know, they weren't cheap either, you know, and he went through a lot of money in the production companies that would produce these shows, the film crews and the, the staging and the lighting and the insurances and, uh, you know, it, it take a couple of days to, you know, film it and then you had to go into production, you know, and edit it and cut it, and get it you know, do voiceovers and interviews, you know, it wasn't... don't do a tv show on you know three hours you know it takes a couple of weeks to put together something that's fit for a can that you could sell the tapes or he was trying to get syndicated in a lot of you know overseas markets and when he was when he died he had an office in in new york city the blimpy sub company he was friends with one of the owners of blimpy and they gave him office space in right next to madison square garden at like seven pen plaza he had a, a suite with like five offices there. I had my own office there. I was helping him do the booking and helping him run the office there. Captain Lou would come in. Johnny Valiant would come in. Um, we had a, a couple of guys, you know, doing a book and he was getting ready to do a couple overseas tours. He booked Israel. He wanted to go back to Germany. He was going to book Germany, Austria. So he had all these films already showing in these countries over there. The best of UWF, you know, he had blackjack brawl, beach brawl, we were doing interviews and sending tapes over. He was about to get funded and go back over and start doing some, some overseas tours when he died. A lot of people don't know that, but he he was, you know, back in I guess 95 when he died, he was getting ready to regroup or 96, whatever year he died, I'm not sure the exact year, but um, I know I was in the office working with him and he was putting together some pretty cool stuff. And he had a couple of TV deals that he was working on too. I mean, Herb was one of those guys, you know, he'd he stumble into a pile of shit and come out wearing new boots. Hmm. You know, he had to gift of gab and everybody, he was well-liked. I mean, even if you hated the guy, he would make you like him somehow. He'd tell jokes and he was a, a jokester. He was a funny comedian type of guy. And everywhere he went, he he liked you. You know, he liked to, to have a good time. And he liked to have fun. But then that side of him, something would trigger him off where he wanted to go party go hang out with hookers and do cocaine and, you know, party. And sometimes you wouldn't see him for two, three days. Then he'd come back into office and be all hungover and, uh, you know. But Then I said, Herb, you know, we got to do this. Okay, we got meetings. we got to meet with this guy, that guy. we got some corporate sponsors that we want to try to hit. So he was working on a couple of things. He was even trying to do you know the the t shirts the dolls have his own merchandise line, and everything else and that's where you really make a lot of money for the promotion off of that stuff the
0: toys it's interesting. it seems like one aspect kind of has this shit together, and then another aspect he's just so you know out there and you know he just it was almost like, like
1: a Jekyll and Hyde type character, yeah. But he always had respect for me and my family. My my family loved him. I mean, it was it was great, you know, having him around us. And he moved over to Great Neck. He lived a couple miles away from his mother over there. He wanted to be close to his mother. uh, You know, when he came back to New York after he left California for good, after he got divorced, he just wanted to do shows and uh, you know promote wrestling. It never really came to full attrition.
0: Yeah, and you and Steve Ray. Pretty successful team there, wet and wild. You know, you guys had a nice run. Obviously you were Sunny Beach and doing the you know, the neon and the surfer gimmick, of course.
1: Well, we wanted to try that out because I think, you know, we were going to try to merchandise that look, you know, do a surf gimmick, and it would have been pretty cool, you know, with a dowel and stuff, a little surfboard or, you know, a little beach ball to come with a, you know, you could sell beach balls or Frisbees. And, you know, the merchandise, and that's why I was leaning towards that. And he gave me full creative control of whatever character I wanted to do and everything, and, you know, I'm six foot, I was, back then I was like, 265, 270, 64. I was in halfway decent shape back then, but um, you know, I know we could have probably sold it on of merchandise with that. And he was trying to do like, you know, on the dark side of the ring, you saw about the Herbie cookies and all that mm-hmm. other stuff. Yep. I mean, he he was looking to do ice cream bars, like the WWF bars with the guys. He was looking to do Herbie cookies, different guys' cookies. Um, he was looking, you know, T-shirts. We, you know, the marketing end was just, you know, it was just we were just barely scratching the surface on that stuff with the guys and then if we would have got a big tv deal we would have definitely you know been able to do all that stuff because we would have had some money or, you know in the budget and some of the you know like the jake's toys and all that other stuff like with wcw and wwf they were making the toys for everybody back then he
0: yeah that was like that was toys. yeah that was like a golden goose when they made those started making those figures
1: I mean, Iron Sheik told me he got a couple of royalty checks back when the first merchandise came out right after WrestleMania. He told me he was making over one hundred, two hundred thousand dollars in merchandise a year. Just oh my birthday. god, wow. That's another, you know, one of the guys that you know squandered his money and you know, let the wife buy a condo in Panama City and then he's got the big house in Atlanta, Georgia. Then the wife then to work and the daughters are spending and you know, you know. Now I feel bad. He's in a wheelchair and his knees, his ankles, still messed up and you know, and he he did a lot of the damage to himself. You know, alienating people and cursing and you know, just uh, you know, a lot of people didn't like him because he was, you know shooting on people all the time, and maybe it was just the translation, you know, being from uh, Iran and, you know, just not treating some of the promoters good, you
0: know. Yes. Yeah, he's definitely one of those uh, crazy characters in wrestling that kind of bled over into real life, for sure.
1: Yeah, you know, and I just feel bad for him now, you know. Here's a guy that made millions of dollars in the wrestling business, and, you know, he's living out of a little room somewhere. You know, I don't even know if he's still married or not. I haven't talked to him in a couple of years. I know he's still doing autograph signings and virtual signings and stuff like that. But last time I saw him, he had a beard. He was in a wheelchair, and he didn't really look, you know, like himself.
0: He doesn't look happy. He looks kind of sad. Gotcha, yeah. I know, yeah, I was going I think he was doing a virtual signing not that long ago. Um, I saw it online. But, yeah, interesting, you know, what happens to some of these guys years and years later. You know, Nikolai
1: Volkov, another good guy in the business, he taught me, you know, how to save money and on the road and, you know, he goes, you don't need to stay in that two, dollars $300 a night hotel room. You could go to the Motel 6 and all you're doing is just sleep in a couple of hours and, you know, you can share a room with somebody and cut your expenses, share a car with a guy instead of getting your own Lincoln Town car, you know, have three or four guys in the car and split it, you know, four ways and you make money. You know, and instead of eating at the big steakhouses, you know, go to the grocery store and buy lunch meat. These guys were making their lunches, their dinners, tuna, cans of tuna fish, you know, crackers, whatever it might be. Always had fruit in the bag, you know, if you're traveling in the car or granola bars or something. They taught me how to save a lot of money. And I wasn't cheap. I would eat out, you know, and stuff. Or, but I was eating good. You know, I would have the chicken breast, grilled chicken. I was always trying to watch what I ate, and you know, eat, eat a little bit better, especially when I was on TV
0: that is great lesson too because you know a lot of guys are spending 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 and they end up all of a sudden the deal runs out or something you know they ran out of money very nice of Nikolai to kind of take you under his wing and teach you the the, the right ways him
1: barry horowitz jose luis rivera jose estrada and hercules hernandez i used to travel with those guys a lot and uh, they used to tell me, you know, everybody had a story. And I was a young kid, so I would usually drive or, you know, and I'd, I'd let them relax and do whatever. And uh, going from town to town, just listening to some of the stories they had. And, you know, Nikolai, he's a veteran. He's been around forever. So, you know, Hercules back then. And Estrada uh, and Rivera, I mean, they were, you know, with Vince Senior. So, you know, these guys took a liking to me. Lanny Poffo, too, uh, and driving with these guys. And, you know, and I got to, you know, hang out with them and and, and go on the road with them, split hotel rooms. Today, Barry Horowitz is still one of my very good friends, Mike Sharp was a good friend t- till he died. Uh, Jose Luis Rivera and Jose Estrada, I don't see them in Puerto Rico. Uh, whenever I'm down in Puerto Rico whenever they come to New York, they come see me. Stan Hansen comes to my house, stays with me. We went and saw the Lion King a couple years ago. Our wives and me, I take him to Little Italy, We go out to dinner. I mean, you know, there's only a handful of people. Ray Lloyd, Glacier, welcome at my house, stays with me. I've known him for 40 years. You know, since we were 18 years old, Valdosta State College together. So, I mean, a lot of these guys, I have lifelong friendships out of it, you know, that I've, you know, cherished today. Tony Atlas, another good guy, the Power Twins. Larry and Dave, they're in Vegas. You know, just guys that you room with and and share rooms with and work with. And the Power Twins actually got me into bouncing up here in New York when I moved up to New York. Uh, When I, you know, met my wife. When I was wrestling with WWF, she was living in New York, a girl Italian girl from Brooklyn. I'm living in Jacksonville, Florida, you know, and we started dating. She would fly to Florida. I'd fly up here, and when I wasn't on the road, I'd fly back, you know, come to New York. I'd stay with her a couple weeks or whatever, and I'd go back on the road with Vince. And then the Power Twins got me when I wasn't on the road full-time events. I would start bouncing with them the nightclubs in the city. So they used to work all over Long Island and New York City, and I started bouncing, and I started my own company, and then they moved out to Vegas, and I stayed here, and it just really took off for me, the security business. And then I was only, you know, wrestling independent shows with Tommy D here and there, or Rob Russin, or... Uh, you know, a couple of shots here and there with Sovaldi or maybe Johnny Rods or Gleason's Gym, we would do shows, or Bobby Bold Eagle. You know, I'd work little outlaw independent shows here and there, go overseas, go to Japan. And, you know, that's how I was making money. It was it was good. It was decent. But you can't wrestle forever. And I, I, I had hindsight. and You know, I, I knew I had to fall back on something. I had to start, you know, doing something quick so I could maintain my lifestyle and feed my family
0: for sure and as we head towards the finish we head towards the wind down. i did also want to ask whatever happened to herb abrams boots those awesome boots
1: you know i don't know i'm sure they were at his house when he passed away and i'm sure his family you know i helped them clean out a lot of stuff so we put a lot of stuff in storage bins and stuff like that and i know his mom passed away a few years back but um i don't know if his sister hildy took it or his cousin steve simon took it but um, I don't know. I don't know where the boots went. I don't think they buried them with them, but uh, they were unique by all means. Um, you know, like McFoley said. You know, he he called him into the room and showed him the boots. He was so proud of the boots. And Herb was like a bigger than life. He wanted to be one of the boys more than anything. And uh, he got along with the boys. And if he was a little bit taller, he could have probably been one of the boys because he would, you know. Jump on your back, or if you were in the ring or practicing, or you got there early and you set them in the ring, Herb would jump in there and want to wrestle around and play around, and he was just—he was full of life. He really was, and it's sad that you know he—he—he he, he left us at. I think he was forty years old when he died. Yes,
0: yeah, so very, very young, gone way too soon. And there was yeah. another promotion um, that you worked for, AWF, That was a very, which we kind of mentioned off very quickly before. Um, that was a, a kind of an underrated promotion out there. Had Orndorff and Tito and you know, a bunch of big names in that promotion as well. well.
1: We had a bunch of names, and Eddie Gilbert was supposed to be the booker. Gordon Scusari. he came into a lot of money when his parents died. And he was a young kid, a big wrestling fan, a big mark he was. Loved wrestling, loved uh, you know the sheets, loved every little bit about it. But he was a fan, and he didn't know too much about the nuts and bolts of wrestling, how to promote shows, what goes into shows, how much it costs for the wrestlers. You have to fly them in, you have to put them up in a hotel, you got to pay for their transportation, their lodging. Um, he, he thought he was just going to you know get a couple guys and you know local guys and, and work, but you're not going to sell tickets with just local guys. You know, back then there was no internet. There was no you know, a lot of the internet was just, you know, starting to come about. There was, you know, wrestling chat rooms and, and stuff like that. But it wasn't like it is today, you know, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and all that stuff. And there wasn't as many, you know, so called knowledgeable guys in the business that have their own podcast or their own weekly syndicated shows or you know, there wasn't everybody doing that stuff. So Gordon wanted to promote a couple of shows. He booked Lowell Lowell Mass in Lowell, Massachusetts, and he booked uh, Asbury Park Convention Center down by you. Yep. And uh, he wanted to do TV tapings. So we did a – Eddie Gilbert was, you know, 100% in up until about the 11th hour. (laughs) Then he never – he no-showed him at the TV taping and everything else. And everybody was going crazy trying to figure out what to do. So we got everybody together, and we just started doing matches and – Jeff Gaylord was my partner. They wanted to make us tag team champions, me and Gaylord right off the bat. He came in from Tennessee, and uh, he had Tito there. He, I think he had Orndorff, Tito. Orndorff was his champion. Me and Jeff Gaylord were his tag team champions, and he was trying to get somebody else. And I think he, I think Eddie Gilbert was supposed to be his TV champion or something like that, but he never came you know God rest his soul he never came into the promotion or did any work with him but Jim Cornette came up and they had a lot a lot of people I think uh, uh, Ronnie Gossett came up to manage from Tennessee so we had a couple you know Jeff Gaylord, Ronnie Gossett there was a couple guys from Tennessee coming up Eddie Gilbert and I think he was bringing Doug Gilbert up and, um there was a few other guys I think Manny Fernandez was with us Um can't remember everybody that was a TV tape. Bob Orton Jr., I think Junkyard Dog might have been there. So we had a, a Sabu. I think we had a great array of talent there, but uh, it was just a big cluster, you know, because nobody knew what to do. And we filmed a couple of tapes, and I never really got to see any of the tapings. Gordon, uh, he had another show up in Lowell, and it didn't do too good either. We threw that together. And uh, he just, you know, blamed a lot of stuff on me that I, you know, I, I tried to help him. And, you know, I got thrown into that position to help him book. And then he said that I didn't have a lot of friends in the wrestling business when half the guys we called, we got them, you know, to work even cheaper because I was friendly with them. But he was saying, oh, we needed, you know, local guys so I didn't have to spend all the money on trans. And he wasted a lot of money having these production people and all this other crap. But, um, you know, after those two shows, I never worked with Gordon again. But... I think he maybe did a couple other ones. I'll take that back. I did work for him again. We went down to Puerto Rico, and we did a joint promotion, AWF, down there. uh, uh, The company down there was running opposition against uh, Jose Gonzalez, and uh, uh,
0: what's the guy's name down there? Uh, They were in
1: charge of Capital Sports down there in Puerto Rico.
0: Carlos Colon? Uh,
1: Carlos Colon and Jose Gonzalez. Yeah, they owned that. It was... uh, TNT Juan Rivera, before it was Savio Vega, Hercules Ayala, um, I think Chicky Star, uh, uh, Super Medics were down there, which was uh, Estrada and Rivera, Conquistadors, and there it was Estrada's son Julio, um, Hurricane Castillo Jr. and there was a couple other guys down there that were big name guys. And then Manny Fernandez I think came down with us when we were down there, so we we ran a couple of shows in Puerto Rico and. Uh, We had, you know, good, good, we were down there about a month, and uh, we had a lot of good houses down there. He was trying to film stuff and try to do stuff down there, but then, you know, he just didn't have the money to bring us back and forth to Puerto Rico. So I said, Look, I'm going back with Herb Abrams, and, uh, you know, good luck with your AWF. You know, then he said, You know, uh, well, you gave Paul Orndorff the belt, and he never gave it back to me. I said, Well, you told me to give it to him because he's your champion. So he, he had, you know, a lot of craziness, and, you know, he, he said that Paul Orndorff was doing a commercial with Hulk Hogan and wanted a belt. He used his belt. He never gave it back to him. So I don't know the story. Paul Orndorff might remember it. I don't know, but uh, Paul Orndorff had his belt, and I don't know if he owed him money to give it back or what, or he promised him some bookings and never kept good on his word. And You know, some of these old-timers, if you promise them something, your word's your bond. You know, you either got to book them or pay them for the date because they're taking a date away from somewhere else where they could have worked. So a lot of times guys would get upset and pissed off. And, you know, they'd, if you gave them a belt or you made them their champion, they would keep your belt or you'd have to pay them extra to get them to book on the next show. So that's how it went back in the golden days of wrestling. And it still is today. If somebody doesn't book you or somebody books you and cancels you, you know, you're not really going to work for that guy anymore.
0: Yeah, very, very true. And as far as you in the wrestling business, I mean, literally we talked about it, you worked everywhere. You they kind of done it all, Japan, WWE, WCW. Do you have any regrets in the business at all? Anything you look back on and you're thinking you wish maybe you did it differently or worked somewhere differently? You no, know, I had a
1: chance to go overseas a couple of times. IWA were doing shows like in Austria and stuff like that. And I turned down that booking to go somewhere else and my booking got canceled. So I was kind of upset because I didn't do that. I always wanted to go to Australia, and I never got to go. And they, all the guys had a good time. Paul Orndorff was there, Kamala, Thunderfoot, wanted and two. I mean, they had Derek Dukes, Larry Cameron. Uh, I would have loved to have went on that tour. You know, they had a lot of fun, great time. And uh, they wanted me to go, and I didn't get to go. So I was a little upset about that. But I, I have no regrets in the business. I just wish maybe I would have worked out a little bit harder and got my body in a little better shape maybe. Maybe I would have got a better push. Um, maybe I shoulda shouldn't have listened to some of the people I listened to and went to different places. You know, like I never went to WCW up in Atlanta, and I could have went up there. Ole Anderson was booking, and I could have maybe got got in over there. Um, with Bill Watts when he was booking, but uh, I never really got in over there, and I never got to work with those guys, and I regret that. That's not my only regret: never being on Superstation TBS or Georgia Championship. But um, I worked pretty much every other territory, you know, Um, Peach State, Southern Championship, Championship Wrestling from Florida, Continental Wrestling, wrestled them a couple times, went to Louisiana, Shreveport, wrestled out there, Um, wrestled uh, Calgary. Uh, Never got to wrestle AWA, I regret that. I could have went there back when they had the Trooper. I got to wrestle... uh, back when Joe Petticino had global championship wrestling. Oh, yeah.
0: yep, and They brought
1: us, me and Steve Ray, they brought us in for the tag team championship
0: there. And
1: Herb called them up and said that we were under contract with them. And uh, while we were at TV tapings there. So they tried to take us off TV and they tried to squash us and all that stuff afterwards. And I said, look, I'm not, if you want to use me, I said, I'll put a hood on, I'll work. And I wrestled a couple times under the hood for them for TV for them. I said, since I'm here, I'll wrestle. I don't mind, but you're not going to squash me and kill me off where I can't go anywhere else. So I wrestled smart and, I, you know, I, I took care of my business. and I didn't let people dictate, you know, what I was going to do. I mean, only one that dictates to a promoter, like Vince McMahon, he'll tell you, you know, who's going to win, who's going to lose, You know what you're going to do, what you're going to get paid, all aspects of the business. And a lot of people, they don't like Vince because he has that much control. But Vince is one of the hardest working guys in the business. Nobody gave Vince anything other than his father. and He took it. And he's the one that bought up all the territories. He's the one that made all these deals with the merchandising and with all the toy companies and
0: everything else. So
1: Vince used his money to make a lot of money. And you can't blame a guy for being a good businessman.
0: Yes, very, very true. Now, as far as kind of yourself, I know what you're doing lately, but do you get on social media? Do you have plugs and stuff? Do you still do
1: a I lot do. of the wrestling
0: stuff? I know you do some signings and stuff, but do you do, do anything else as far as wrestling? Believe it or not, I've
1: been doing some podcasts. Like, I got out of it for about 20 years to grow my business, and then I got tired of, you know, the, the direction wrestling was going. Back then, you know, with the Val Venus thing, where they were exploiting women a lot, and when they were doing, like, the baby stuff with Mae Young and, and, and you know, all that stuff, and, and Moolah. And it was just, you know, like, some of it was wasn't bad. It was very distasteful, and you know, um, I, I didn't want my son to watch that, or you know, growing up, and I, I didn't think it, you know, like Bruno when it, when you know the steroid stuff came out, and Bruno you know, was estranged from the WWF for a bunch of years because he didn't believe in the product and he didn't want, you know, to tarnish his good name. I mean, my name's not the best name out there. I'm not the biggest draw or a big name by no means, but I had morals, and you know, I'm a family man first and foremost. And, you know, some of the stuff I didn't agree with that was on television, you know, that, that the, the, the direction they were going with the wrestling. You know, Venus and the porn stars and the, the, the divas and all that stuff it was just some of it was ridiculous to watch and, and i just took a sabbatical away from the business but the last two three years i've gone to the big events in new york did signings there um, i'm going to a, a big show down in june in jacksonville florida uh they're doing a big signing on a saturday and sunday in june down there um and then I got WrestleCon coming up here, and I'm going up to Albany in, uh, in March. So I got a couple signings in March. I'm doing some of these podcasts. John Arrizzi, hopefully, is going to do this 30 year Weekend of Champions thing that I'm going to be involved with. So I'm getting back into it. I'm getting a new website, sunnybeachusa.com, is going to be my uh, my wrestling website. Hopefully, I can sell some merchandise some gimmicks on there, 8 by 10 pictures. And, uh, you know, um, doing some stuff with Tommy Fierro. He's uh, Before COVID, he was going to do a wrestling promotion down there called Retro Championship Wrestling, and I was going to start managing some of the younger talent for him. So, I mean, I'm going to get back into wrestling. I mean, now that my business is established with the security, I can, you know, be a weekend warrior and, you know, help bring along some of the younger generation and pay it forward and give them a little bit back, some wrestling knowledge and, uh, you know, have a little fun, you know, with it now
0: yeah absolutely that sounds awesome and i really really appreciate all the time tonight it's been awesome kind of taking a trip down memory lane with you really uh I appreciate
1: really appreciate it. it always good to you know try to give back and let people know you're still relevant and still out there in the world and still alive and kicking you
0: know yeah absolutely just want to thank you uh for all the time i really really appreciate it it's been my pleasure thank you so much and you have a great evening thank you you too all right bye-bye bye-bye Brother